Well, good morning, everybody. I love seeing baptisms. That's awesome. So the other day, my son comes from, from school, and um, he kind of says something to the effect of to my wife, um, I don't want to talk about it. And she's like, you don't want to talk about what? Thanks, man. Isn't red amazing? I love that dude. Thanks, right? Anyway, and my wife's like concerned, like, okay, did somebody hurt you? I don't want to talk about it. Like, what's wrong? I don't want to talk about it. I'm embarrassed. And, and she calls me. She's like, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, look, at least he's telling you something happened. Give him a chance. He always talks. He's a little bit like his daddy. All right. So anyway, long story short, as the day progresses, um, I asked her the next day. I forgot. I was like, oh, did he ever tell you? You come around. She said, yeah. He totally told me after, you know, the brothers went outside. He stayed behind. He told me. So what happened? So apparently he's on the playground, and um, some kids were being bullies to another kid. And they're, like, taking a ball away or something like that. And, uh, and he stepped in to try to help. Uh, get the ball back for the kid who was kind of roughly taken away from. And a teacher came over and kind of yelled at all the kids, there's a little scrum going on and that kind of thing. And he was like, Mommy, I'm so sorry. I disobeyed. I'm so sorry I got in trouble. And my wife said, Son, you protected somebody. You reached out for somebody that others weren't doing anything about. Others weren't helping. I'm You always have to obey the teacher, but you did the right thing, as best as I can tell. Good job. And so last week we talked about the justice of God. And part of the justice of God means God is calling us who love him to act in this world on his behalf to bring justice. Now today we're going to pick up the other side of that same coin, so to speak, and we're going to look at the mercy of God. That same son later that day, same day, disobeyed his daddy multiple times in a row, ignoring what I said, and it led to his brother getting hurt. Now, if I had given him justice, I might be in prison today. It wouldn't be that bad. Instead, I gave him mercy. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't correct him. That doesn't mean I didn't rebuke him. That doesn't mean anything like that. It just means I didn't give him what he deserved. And we're going to talk about that. So God is a God of justice and God is a God of mercy. He is not sometimes just and sometimes merciful. He is always just and always merciful. And this is so hard for us to envision. It is so difficult because the world we live in and the person that I am, I'm guessing you're just like me, is I am a sinner. And so I think like a sinner. I don't think like a holy, righteous God. And so because I live in a church, in a family, in a community, in a country, in a world full of sinners, we keep creating awkward situations for each other where we have to figure out what does justice and mercy look like in this situation. And there is no perfect one-size-fits-all. If you always do this, it's right. However, there are really big overarching principles. Like we must walk in the justice of God and seek justice on earth. We must walk in the mercies of God and seek mercy on earth. And so my hope is by the end of today, some of you who are bent towards justice will feel empowered and equipped and convicted to be merciful. And maybe by the end of today, God will do to you what he's already doing to me. And he'll bring a name, a name to mind.
So before we move on, what I want to do right now is I want to pray. I want to pray that God would stir in this room. But the prayer I want to give is a twofold prayer. It's a blessing and a conviction. So here's the prayer. What I want to do right now is pause and just ask, would anybody in this room who's ever been a veteran, a veteran, or if you are a veteran, um, stand up real quick because we just want to honor you and then we want to pray a blessing over you as we're praying for God to stir in our hearts. Would you just stand? Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. My friends and family members who are veterans tell me it's tough because they are carrying out the justice of a government, and then you have to hope and pray your government is a righteous government, and you, you, you can't question orders. And so you've had very difficult responsibilities over the years, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God will honor your desire to honor him. I mean that. So let's pray over them. Let's pray over each other. Let's pray for God to move right now. Father in heaven, I thank you for all of those who stood in this room, all of the veterans in this room. They gave up their time. They gave up their lives in some cases. And um, even the families who we didn't ask to stand made a sacrifice, Father, so that we could live in freedom in this great country that we do. God, we pray that we would never take that for granted, and we pray a blessing over all of those who stood. We also pray, God, right now that you would stir in our hearts, that you would uh, stir in us. Father, I pray that you would literally bring a name or two or three that we need to go and be merciful to so that we could be just like you in this world. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This whole series comes from this one verse right here, Micah chapter 6, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. I grabbed this Bible from uh, one of your seats there, so some of you, somebody doesn't have a Bible, but I do recommend if you don't have a Bible, pick up one of these. This is page 706, 706 in that Bible. It says this, Micah 6, 8. Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. Waiting, I hear pages flipping. And this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Justice, to do what is right. I told you last week the word right, righteous, just, justice, they're synonymous. And if you don't remember English class, that means they're interchangeable. You can use one or the other. So what God is telling us here is what he requires. Anybody who wants to, to walk in God's ways, he requires that you do the right thing and that you bring about justice, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly. Next week we'll talk about humbly. But today I want to talk about the mercy of God. What does it mean that God is merciful? The, the clearest, most defined passage on the mercy of God comes from God's mouth itself. Because in this one particular passage, you see the justice of God and the mercy of God all smashed together in one moment. This passage comes in a very powerful time in the lives of the Israelites. If you don't know the story of Israel, Israel were, was for roughly 400 and something odd years, 450 I believe, 460, I can't remember, years, they were selected. Slaves. I mean intense, evil slavery in Egypt. And as slaves, they worked hard and built uh, many of some of the things we see today as ruins. They, they were uh, poorly treated, they were given unfair expectations, and they worked hard. And in that season of oppression, they cried out to God for freedom. They begged God for release. They asked God to come and heal them and help them and be their guard and their guide and their shepherd and their restorer. And God shows up with a man named Moses and he leads them out through miracles. This is the whole book of Exodus. It's an amazing book. But Pharaoh, the leader of the Israelites, he doesn't want to let go. Now this is ultimately, get this, this is ultimately a battle between gods and the spiritual world. 
the God and the false gods or demons masquerading as God. Each of the 10 plagues that Moses brings from God through Moses, each of those 10 plagues is literally a slap in the face to one of the false gods of Egypt. It's huge. God is basically saying, you worship frogs, which I know sounds crazy to us today. But you worship frogs, I'm telling you I'm bigger than frogs. You worship gnats, I'm telling you I'm bigger than the gnats. You worship the sun, I'm telling you I'm bigger than even the sun. And each of those 10 plagues was a slap in the face to the false gods of Egypt. This is huge because then after Moses leads the people out of captivity and into the desert, God has to change them. They're not yet ready to go into a promised land. They've been slaves for a long time. They don't know freedom. They don't know God. They don't trust him. They don't believe in him yet. So God takes them on a journey. And as a part of this journey, he comes to Moses and he says, Moses, I'm going to give you my rules, my principles for my people. Here's how they are to act. And in this beautiful conversation, we see this at the end of Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. So it's at the end of 33. Moses says to God, I just want to see you. Like here we are having this conversation. I hear you. You're talking to me. But I don't actually see you. See, the gods in Egypt, we can see the frogs. We can see the sun. I just want to see you. And God tells Moses, see, we got a problem here, Moses. No man can see me and live. But see, that wasn't the way it always was. If you go back into the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned, God walked with Adam and he walked with Eve in the garden. There was something different before sin came and really ruined and messed everything up. And so God says to Moses, you, don't, you, you, you can't handle the truth. Like, you don't even... So, one of my friend's 12-year-olds came over to do leaves with me yesterday. And um, I was talking about how when I was a kid, his age, I wanted to be a lawyer because of this movie called A Few Good Men. And he's like, never heard of it. <laughs> Demi Moore, Jack Nicholson? Nope. Tom Cruise? Who? Dude, 40 stinks. <laughs> but Moses can't handle the truth. Some of you still don't know the reference, but that's all right. Google it. And so here's what God does to Moses. He says, Moses, I'm going to come down. I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. And so God puts Moses in like a little cleft on a rock, a little place. He covers him with his own hand. And then here's what happens. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. Check this out. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out Yahweh. Now, before you go too far, you need to understand Yahweh is the revealed name of God that God gave to Moses. So he's calling out his own name. And in Hebrew, it's a very complex thing. We're not even exactly sure how to pronounce it. That's the best we could think of is Yahweh based off of how we understand the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew writing system. But it literally means I am that I am. And here's what that means. It means that God is saying I am. Nobody else has created me. Nobody else is bigger than me. Nobody else is better than me. I am. So God originally told Moses because Moses asked, so who are you? When Pharaoh asks me what God is sending me, and Moses' only context for power is a name, a position, and God's context for power is his character. I am the Lord. The God of what? Compassion and mercy. 
When God describes himself and literally reveals himself as best as Moses can handle, he doesn't actually show himself to Moses. He says, I'm going to let my glory pass by you. When the glory of God came through, God leads with his name, I am, my character, and what is the most important component of my character? Compassion and mercy. This is who our God is. And see, some of you, you've seen God at a distance and you've wondered what in the world God is up to and you're wondering, God, do you just not care? And I would just suggest to you, if that's you, that's your story, just life has happened and you wondered if where God is, is he paying attention? I just want to encourage you, don't stop asking the question because God proclaims about himself that he is compassionate and merciful. But look at the rest of what he says here. I am slow to anger and filled with un. Failing love and faithfulness, unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. In these two verses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we see God's mercy and we see God's justice. We can work backwards. So notice here he says, I do not excuse the guilty. In other words, I don't just look at him and say, Matt, no big deal. No, 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 no. Every rebellion, every sin against God requires justice. But that came after all the previous statements about patience and unfailing love and compassion and mercy, slow to anger. When we understand we, God is both just and merciful, it changes our view of him. My hope is by the end of today, and if I fail, it's because I'm a human communicator. It's not because God is unfaithful. If I fail to make this clear, my hope by the end of today is you will understand both God's justice and mercy, how they work together, and what you're supposed to do with them. In this one passage, we see three things about the mercy of God I want you to hang on to, and those are the three things we're going to walk through today. Number one, God is merciful. Number two, God is patient. And number three, God is gracious. And let's talk about what those three things mean real quick. So let's start with God is merciful. God is merciful. Here's what mercy means. I love this quote by Jack Cottrell. He says this, Mercy must be understood in light of the suffering and misery caused by sin. It is the love of God as directed toward mankind in his sin-caused pain, suffering, need, misery, and distress. It involves a feeling of sympathetic concern that is basically the same as compassion plus a desire to relieve the sufferer's distress. Sometimes a person brings this distress upon himself because of his personal sin. More often, it is the cumulative result of others' sins, including Adam's. That's Adam in the garden. And before I read this last part, you need to know what the scriptures teach us is that you and I today are feeling the effects of Adam's choice in the garden. Cancer didn't exist in the garden. AIDS didn't exist in the garden. Adam and Eve never had a fight in the garden before that dreadful day. You ever imagine a home like that? Never happened. Adam's sin so dramatically changed this world. 
I don't even know, guys, and you don't either, the depths of that. In, in Romans chapter 8, when Paul's talking about this, and he talks about how all of creation is groaning, crying out, begging God for relief. In other words, our sin, our rebellion against God has somehow deeply impacted all of the earth. Now, there are certain movies that will come out today and say that's because today we, we take from the earth all of its natural resources. Yeah, but they weren't doing that back then in that day. Something is going on because all of creation is subject to the will of God. And yet we, we are the only beings who had freedom to obey or not obey God. You could argue angelic beings as well. But in our rebellion, it completely impacted the physical world. To degrees we don't even understand. What Jesus is doing is he's bringing shalom, peace, healing to the earth, to us, to our lives, to our communities, to our governments, to our world. There is no part of all of creation that the cross of Christ didn't touch in its healing power. Ultimately, one day, when Jesus returns, literally fire will come down and, and burn up whatever it is that God intends for it to burn up as he recreates. Now, does that mean complete devastation? I don't know. Does that mean it's going to purify like how fire melts gold and, and leaves behind the good stuff? Possibly. What I know is that God is intending to restore and renew all of creation back to the garden. And then look at this last part of what Jack Cottrell says. But as far as mercy is concerned, it does not matter whether the suffering is deserved or not. In his mercy, God wants to remove the suffering regardless of its cause. I just want you to hang on that last sentence. God wants to remove the suffering regardless of its cause. See, some of you in this room are bent towards justice, and you should be, except if you don't counterbalance your justice with mercy, when you see somebody going through a hard time, you look at them and say, well, you know, if, fill in the blank, then fill in the blank. I had a, uh, one of my good friends, a guy I was on staff with my last church, just, he's the kind of guy every staff needs. An older gentleman, seasoned, mature, wise, but he told me one day, he said, I almost didn't get my master's degree in counseling. I almost didn't pass some of the classes. I said, why? He said, because I just told the truth too much. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you're going to counsel somebody, they tell you, you need to be calm and sympathetic and empathetic and try to identify with their pain. I would sit there and sometimes people would share things and I'm thinking in my head, this is stupid. You really thought that was a good idea? And like, you're in here and you're like mad at God and everybody else? Like, look at what you did. Now, he never said that, but what he would say is he'd look at them and say, well, how's that working out for you? <laughs> he said, I have had to learn to not always speak what's in my mind. Some of you, that would go a really long way. Now, here's the thing. When God leads about his character, did he lead with justice? No, what did he lead with? Mercy. If we're going to become like our Heavenly Father, then we must lead with mercy. It doesn't matter how the person got to where they are. 
Now, if they're going to get out of where they are, it might matter. There are sinful habits and patterns and behaviors that may have led them to the place where they are. And you are doing nobody any favors if you continue to allow them to stay stuck where they are by empowering and equipping unhealthiness. But if you lead with that and you don't lead with mercy, then you do not understand your heavenly father. Let's talk a little more about what it means to lead with mercy. Well, know this, that God led with mercy related to me. And God leads with mercy related to you. Here's why. Mercy triumphs over judgment in Christ Jesus every time. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what that means. This is hard to understand if you're visiting with us today. I'm taking like the entirety of the scriptures. I'm boiling it down into a very small chunk for you. But just get this and then keep asking questions, all right? You need to know that because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, every subsequent generation has sinned. And so you go back to 34, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. God says, I punish iniquity to, for generation after generation after generation. I hand down from the fathers what goes on to the sons. And this is mind-boggling. I am going to do an entire sermon on this next year. I just don't know when yet. I'm trying to figure out where it fits best. But let me give you a snippet of this conversation. The reality is, and you can see this in your own life, you are probably bound to become just like your parents without any effort. Have you ever noticed that? Remember when you were a kid? Man, when I grow up, I'm not gonna... And then you grew up. Right? Right? Now, some of you are extreme examples because you had an extremely abusive whatever. You swung the pendulum the other way. And the pendulum the opposite direction wasn't necessarily the right thing either. So now maybe you're too fill in the blank. And the point is this. It's not that God is saying, oh, yeah, I'm so going to punish you for your parents' sins. I think God is making a statement about justice. The reality is we train our kids in who we are. God is trying to train us in who he is. But his mercy always triumphs over his judgment in Christ Jesus. And if you miss this, then you miss the heart of the gospel. See, what I have earned as a result of my rebellion and sin against God, all the things that I have done that he has told me is not acceptable for me to do is I have earned justice and I have earned wrath. But in Christ, I didn't get that. So if you go back to that Exodus story, The very last thing that God did, he got Pharaoh's attention by saying to Pharaoh, I'm going to take the firstborn of every male child born. The only way you're going to escape this is if you take the blood of an innocent lamb. We're going to put it over the doorway. And you're like, this is so weird. You need to understand something. We live in a physical world, right? And so God constantly interacts with us in the physical world. He's constantly giving us physical reminders of spiritual realities. Why do we get baptized? Is there anything magical in the water? We don't have any magical chemical, although we do have to put chemicals in it to keep it clean. We don't have any magic powder. I don't come in and put my hands in it and like the spirit just comes out of me and into the water. Although it would be cool to watch if I could do that. Why do we take communion? We here do not believe like Catholics do that the bread literally changes into the body of Christ. I personally think that's weird. Why do we do these things? Because God has given us physical reminders of spiritual realities. Things that we can constantly do to remind ourselves of his mercy and his grace. Baptism is a grace 
Communion is a grace. Worship is a grace. Prayer is a grace. There are ways when heaven becomes connected deeply to earth. And in the Exodus story, the blood of the lamb over the doorway was a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. One day, Jesus would come, God's own son, and he would give up his blood. And anybody who would put it over his life would no longer receive the death they deserve. The justice of God would be satisfied in the blood of Jesus. It was a picture intended to point us to something else. And this is what the Bible calls atonement. And I know that's a big word. In theological terms, we believe in a substitutionary atonement. And what that means, think of a substitute. That's where we get the word substitutionary, right? Your kids go to school and your teacher's not there that day. So what do they give them? A substitute, that poor soul. God bless all of you who do this. And it would be no different for the cross. See, I deserved the cross. My rebellion, my iniquity, my sin deserved the cross. But God didn't give me the cross. He gave it to his son and said. But see, it wasn't good enough. My mom, she would have gladly volunteered to die for my salvation. But my mom couldn't get the job done because she wasn't perfect. Don't tell her. My sister, I would have gladly given my life for my sister. But I get, man, she's done so many sins. There was no way my life was good enough. Joking, obviously, but a perfect one, Jesus, who never sinned, who never failed, who always obeyed. He goes to the cross in my place and instead gave me the life that I couldn't attain on my own. And when he did, atonement means the covering. What he did is he gave me the covering of the mercy of God. So, see, some of you sitting here today. You've made a mockery of your lives. All those things you swore you'd never become, you became. All those things, you've pointed a finger at other people and said, well, I'll never do that, but you did. And yeah, we make ourselves feel better, right? We find somebody worse than us. Well, I'm not like them. We'll talk about that more next week. But the point is for anyone, anyone who would come to Christ Jesus... We receive mercy rather than judgment. Now, what's terrifying is the opposite of this. Outside of Christ Jesus, there is no mercy left. Now, there's mercy in this life. We call this the common grace of God. God sends rain on both the good and the evil, right? So God is showing common grace to everyone, but specific grace, special grace, eternal grace to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what this lady was doing today when she gave her life to Christ at baptism. Romans chapter 11, verse 22, Paul says this. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe towards those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you will also be cut off. Now, some of you who grew up in legalistic churches or legalistic families, you hear a verse like this and you get terrified like, <gasps> I had a season of wandering. Has God cut me off? Man, I've not been faithful in my quiet time. I missed church two weeks in a row. Okay, that might actually be enough. I'm not sure. But 
The point of a verse like this, guys, is to let you know a spiritual reality. The moment you choose to stop putting your faith and your hope in God and you put it in something else, your job, your spouse, yourself, and you've removed yourself from mercy. Mercy was never something you earned. Mercy was always something given to you out of the goodness of who God is. And so we unleash mercy in our lives by simply receiving it. It is who God is. But here's the thing. Mercy is also the standard of living as Christians. What God is doing in us is he's changing us. He's shaping us. He's forming us into his likeness. That's the goal he has for your life. So he wants you to become merciful. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus kind of gives his marching orders for all people. And he says this, God blesses those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. You can actually, some theologians say, trade out the word blesses for happy. Happy are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I don't always understand the word blessed today. I mean, we use it all the time. My last pastor was like his marching orders. He would always find a way to slip the word blessed or blessing or bless in every sermon. He closes every email with blessings ahead. He works for a ministry called the Blessing Ranch. I mean, it's like... This is his word, but it doesn't mean much to me. But when you change out the word blessed for happy, that makes sense to me. I get that. You really want to be happy in this life? Be merciful. See, most of us think, most of us think happiness comes from control and power. And if somebody hurts me, then I have the right to hurt them back. That's justice. God says, there is a such thing as justice. I'm calling on you to fight for justice, but I'm asking you to be merciful when doing it brings up a lot of great questions, doesn't it? That's why James gives us this. James chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. So, whatever you say or whatever you do. So, that covers everything, right? You're either sleeping, saying, or doing. Those are the three things. Remember, you will be judged by the law that sets you free. What's that? It's the law of love, Paul calls it. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Okay, let's not just make this theoretical for a minute. Let's make this practical, okay? We asked God to reveal a name, a person, or some people in our lives that he may be calling us to show mercy to. Is there someone in your life that you've been cruel or harsh or judgmental with? Somebody that you have not been kind and compassionate and merciful toward? Now, you may be asking, I don't know what to do with what I'm hearing. I can't promise you I can give you every answer to every question, but I hope I could give you a little more. So let's just keep going and see what we continue to learn. So we talked that God is merciful. God, in that passage, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we also saw that God is patient. He says uh, he, he is loving and kind. He is loving and patient. He's waiting for us. Patience is this. Patience is when God shows delay and restraint in carrying out his justice and wrath. That's patience from God's standpoint. Patience is when my son attacks um, my other son, and I say stop, and he doesn't stop. And I say quit, and he doesn't quit. And I go over and try to separate them, and he won't stop, and he keeps going at him, and then he ends up hurting him. Patience is that I don't simply take him in the other room and uh, really let him have it. 
patience is me understanding that he's a little boy with emotions that he doesn't fully understand because he's a little boy. And so I take him in the other room and I sit with him while he works through it until he can understand what it means to be merciful to his brother when his brother drives him crazy. Because that's what my heavenly father is doing with me. Now, you may not always be in the position like I am with my son to be the one who leads and trains and teaches this person who's being rebellious in your life. That might not be your role, but your role is still to be merciful. Here's what Isaiah says in verse 48.9. God says, Yet for your own sake and for the honor of my name, I will hold back my anger and not wipe you out. Every parent ought to get that one memorized. Especially if you have a son. For the sake of my own name, one day you're carrying on the family name. I hate quoting Bill Cosby now, and, and I apologize for doing it, but he, he told this joke when I was a kid. And uh, some of you don't know who Bill Cosby is. That's all right. He, he's friends with Tom Cruise. Anyway, <clears throat> he said his mama told him one time when he was acting out, he said, she said, son, I will take you out. And I will make another one that looks just like you. That works great unless you have a family of adoption like we do. But anyway, for my own sake and for the honor of my name, I'm going to hold back. I'm going to be patient. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm holding back my justice because of my mercy. Jack Cottrell again says this, if God were to give us what we deserve as soon as we begin to deserve it, <laughs> we would all have perished long ago. It is his loving patience that puts the punishment on hold until it can somehow be set aside or ultimately applied. And here's what that means. If I'm going to be patient with other people in my life, that means that I must constantly hold out the hope that they would still repent. That doesn't mean I allow them to abuse me. That doesn't mean I allow them to mistreat me. No, no, no. I hold justice and mercy in both hands. They're two sides of the same coin. But I lead with mercy and I follow with justice. Some of you, because I realize I can't say everything there is to say, some of you may be in a situation where you can't even discern or you don't have the power or authority to call this one out on your own. I often find myself saying to wives who have abusive husbands, angry husbands, addicted husbands, who are showing continual patterns of unhealth, and they hear a sermon like this, and they're like, so I guess I just have to continue to say any abuse. And I'd say, no. God has put police and governments and elders and pastors on this earth to help carry out justice, to bring justice. That's what we talked about last week. It's not either or, but we lead with mercy. We stand ready to forgive. We be patient while God changes them. But God uses justice sometimes to change us. And someday, someday I'm going to do a whole sermon on the next one minute. But the Proverbs teach us there are really three kinds of people. The wise, the fool, and the evil. The evil person, there is no hope. You cannot get their attention. They will not change. But there are very few truly evil people. The wise receive correction. They understand that they're not perfect. They make mistakes. And if you rebuke them and call them out, they receive it. They may not always like it, but they receive it and try to change. The fool, however, is one dangerous step away from being evil. And one good choice away from becoming wise. But the Proverbs teach us that you cannot, you cannot 
talk to a fool. They won't receive it. The only way, Proverbs says, I believe is in the King James, the only way to get a fool's attention is to lashes to the back, is what it says. What it means is through consequence, justice. What it means is that to withhold justice from a fool is to really make them evil. The point, though, of discipline is always to lead to righteousness. Remember, righteous and just are the same thing. Discipline in your home, discipline in your life, it's always with the intent of leading into a wise person, to lead them into a right relationship with God and other people. 2 Peter 3.9, Peter tells us this, the Lord isn't really slow, sorry, isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. And what Peter's talking about here is the people Peter's writing to are asking him, well, where's Jesus? He's supposed to come back any minute. Why are we going through all this pain and suffering and he hasn't come back yet? And Peter is saying, calm down. It's for your sake and their sake that he hasn't come back yet. Because realize if he comes back today, there are untold, today there would be untold billions of people who would only be under the justice of God. Peter said God's being patient so that hopefully no one will be destroyed, but everyone will see his mercy and turn to him. Paul says it this way to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace you have been saved. Which leads us good into the last point, the last point. God is gracious. God is gracious. Grace is literally, guys, the most extreme expression of God's love when it comes face to face with sin. So you're facing rebellion, you're facing sin, you're facing what the Bible calls iniquity. And God's grace is what keeps him from absolutely destroying us. Again, Jack Cottrell has been so helpful. He said this, grace is God's willingness and desire to forgive and accept the sinner in spite of his sin, to give the sinner the very, what? Come on now. Opposite of what he deserves. Okay, question, this is huge for some of you. Please, some of you who are this is like this message is like really hard for you. Hear this. When does God's grace get unlocked? When we do what? Repent. God's grace stands as a floodgate waiting to be poured out over us. His mercy is all the time. You, some of you who are visiting, all of us, but some of you are visiting, you don't know God. You don't even realize all the ways that God has protected you, all the ways that he's blessed you, all the ways that he's provided for you. And literally, the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father in heaven. Every good and perfect gift. Everything you have that's a blessing came from him. He has shown you mercy, but grace, grace is unlocked by repentance. Grace is unlocked when we turn to him and said, I need you. I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I'm desperate. Help. God says, perfect. And that's what we will talk about next week. So listen, God is calling us to be a people full of grace, but realize Grace is unlocked. Grace is unlocked through repentance. 
So Luke chapter 6, verse 35, 36. Jesus says, look, in light of everything that I've said, Jesus says, here's what we do. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. And then your reward from heaven will be very great. You will truly be acting as children of the most high. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Hang on. Don't go to the last verse yet. Realize what God is saying here. Your reward from heaven will be very great. You know what that means? Somebody's watching. Remember that song? I always feel like somebody's Okay. How about, you better watch out. You better not cry. And God's up in heaven. He is taking note, and this should be so powerful for you. Because God sees the evil in your life. And he's watching to see how you're going to handle it. He's paying attention. He's tuned in. Not only that, he's literally taking note. Oh, I see what you did there. That person who was so cruel and unkind and evil to you, I see how you loved them. Your reward will be great. Why? Because it's who he is. He's kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. He's a merciful God. And that's why Jesus says this, 36, you must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. Let me just talk about this for a minute, real quick. So at my last church, one of my, one of what I would call my spiritual sons, his dad was an alcoholic and abusive. Multiple times the police had to show up and finally his dad was prosecuted. And my, my son, I'm just going to call him that, my son, I love this guy, man. He was so rough around the edges. Not only was his dad verbally and physically abusive, his mom was um, verbally abusive as well, but he naturally gravitated towards her because they were both under the terrible hand of his father. And because of that, my, my son was an angry young man. Always lashing out, always using his words to cut and to hurt and to attack. I had to be patient with him while he was under my care because he would constantly do stupid things. And I teach my kids not to say stupid, but they're not in here. And I would constantly have to correct him and rebuke him. And sometimes he was a fool and would not receive the correction, but most of the time he received it and repented. One time, though, he absolutely blew it. He dishonored and disrespected his mom. And his mom had plenty of culpability in the situation. However, I asked if I could come in and help. And so I sat with the two of them. And I listened while she just tore him down in front of me. Roughly ten times she called him on accident by his dad's name. They aren't even close. They start with a different letter. I would keep correcting her. You do realize that's not his name, right? Yeah, 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 it's not what I meant. I think it is what she meant. She clearly had a deep, profound wound, and she clearly was taking it out on her son, and he had blown it. I am not excusing what he did. And I remember pulling him aside, though, and trying to help him walk through that. 
Now, there's two parts to this story that I want to tell because I think they're helpful. Part one is I'm so proud of my son. After he went off to Bible college, he continued to care for his family. He's done everything possible to help financially and to care for them and to love them and to lead them into a relationship with the Lord. His perspective towards his mother is compassionate and merciful, maybe too far at times, but his desire is that the heart of his heavenly father, and I'm so proud of him. But there was a rough season in there. His mom had reached out to my church for help, and the church had helped not once, not twice, but three times a lady. Multiple times had stepped in to help, and the situation was never changing. She was spending more money on magazines and internet and cigarettes and all kinds of other things, but refusing to do anything to change her scenario. And so the church that I worked at finally told her, we're no longer helping. If you want help, here are the steps you could take. We will connect you with the right ministries, the right opportunities, the right resources to get you back on your feet, but we will no longer throw money at this problem. Now, some people heard about that because she made sure everybody knew that the church wasn't loving her. And at first, those in leadership kept quiet. Finally, we had to say to her, if you continue to not tell the whole story, we will tell the rest of the story. She quit telling that side of the story. But was the church being unmerciful? Absolutely not. We showed her mercy. We didn't judge. We didn't even ask any specific questions that would embarrass her, create shame. What's your need? How do we meet it? We did that more than once. Finally, after multiple times, it's, we said, okay, we're, this is going to be the last time we help. We need to have a conversation about how to get you out of this scenario. We showed mercy and we showed justice at the same time. And I can say, I believe with all my heart, that's one of the many reasons why her son is in such a great place today. And she's in a better place. 2 Corinthians, and this is where I'll close. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can, what? Comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. I want you to see yourself as, uh, as a tower that overflows with water from the inside. And as God pours that water, pushes it up through your life, it literally just bubbles out and spills over the side into those around you. The comfort that you have comes from God giving it to you, but it's not intended only for you. It's intended to spill out onto others, including your enemies. Might I even say, especially your enemies. God requires that we give mercy. And we give mercy because God gave it first. So I know this message falls in a million different places. I'm going to leave you with this. We're about to experience the mercy of God. Don't anybody move. You're going to take the bread and the juice this morning at communion. And as you take that, you are literally drinking in mercy. You are eating mercy. As you connect to heaven in a unique way, and remember that God is literally here sitting with you right now. He loves you. He wants to forgive you. Grace is unlocked through repentance. Take this time to seek his face and say, God, help 
me. Forgive me. He will forgive every time. He's faithful. Unfailingly, he says. He says. But I want to leave you with this last thing. Over these next few weeks between now and Christmas, we're asking every Kingsway person to serve somewhere in our community in a mercy and compassion way. When you leave here today, there's a table right out here. It's the journey table. Just stop by there and say, I want to serve abused people. I want to serve hurting people. I want to serve sick people. I want to serve hungry people. I want to be merciful to the world the way God has been merciful to me. And we will help you find a place. Let me pray. Communion servers, go ahead. Father in heaven, Lord, I feel as your human uh, agent speaker today, God, I feel like there's so many things I haven't said, I haven't made clear. Oh, Father, this is where your spirit is needed right now. God, I pray that you would prompt each and every one of us with a name, and not just with a name, but with an action. God, right now, while we meet you in communion, we celebrate your mercy over us. Oh, Father, would you impress upon us something that we are to do to show mercy to someone in our lives. Open up our hearts, open up our eyes, even open up our wallets, God. That should we see a need this week that we wouldn't simply spew justice, but instead, instead would extend a hand of mercy. And Father, we pray for wisdom. You promise us if we ask, you'll give it to us. Give us wisdom to know what to say and what to do to be more like you. In Jesus' name.